Hey guys, welcome again to ETP Building Blocks. This topic, um, I'm super excited to go through. I think there's a lot of uh, fact versus myth going on out there. And if you haven't tried some form of a high fat, low carbohydrate diet, I guarantee that you know several people who have. So I imagine that we will have an extensive Q&A session at the end, which is totally fine. That's why we've got Brad here. Um, a few housekeeping issues. If you want to ask a question, there is a little raise your hand button. That's how you'll communicate back and forth with us. There isn't an ability for you guys to speak, but we can get your input and then um, your questions through just typing them out in the app. So. Here we go. Our subject is the truth about high fat, low carbohydrate diets. And I am excited that we have Brad on with us today because he's done a lot of research and written articles about this. But briefly, I will start um, with an introduction. So many of you, I'm sure you already know me if you have been on this call before. But uh, if you haven't, I am Susie Glassman. Um, I am not related to the official founder of CrossFit. <laughs> Um, but my husband's name is Greg, so I am married to Greg Glassman, just not the Greg Glassman. <laughs> um, I have two kids. They're fun. They're high energy, so they keep me busy. And then I've been coaching for about three years, so um, I love it. Ed, tell us about yourself. All right, so I'm Coach Ed, and I've been with Eat to Perform for about a year now. And I actually started with a different nutrition company, and then I started reading about Eat to Perform, fell in love with their philosophy, um, started doing that, saw amazing results, reached out to the CEO, Paul, and came up through the apprenticeship program. And now I am a full-time coach here. So that's a little bit about myself. Awesome. Uh, what, all right. Um, also didn't, what Ed didn't tell you is he has the best hair of all of us. So he also gets that title. <laughs> um, I appreciate that. So, yeah, I'm Brad. Most people call me Dr. Brad. I'm the uh, formally slash informally the chief scientific officer. Uh, that's what I call myself. I don't know if Paul's actually given me that title, but I'm going to stake my claim. Uh, I do most of the, the education. I do a lot of the data analysis on everything. I do all the scientific stuff on the back end. Um, and let's see, I've been here since 2000. 15 so we're going on almost three years and it's been a whirlwind of a three years It's been a lot of fun It's been really cool to see how things have evolved and changed and you know, we just feel super thankful to have all of you guys here and uh, You know just your support's been super awesome. So I'm excited to talk about what we're talking about today. This is something that I've been really interested in from a scientific perspective um, and also from a clinical applied perspective for probably the last decade so it'll be really fun to chat about all this stuff and so any questions you guys have you guys have fire them at me all right cool well let's go through so the first part of building blocks we always do it this way we like to hear from you guys so when i say your turn you'll see what we mean in just a second um, and then we'll get into the topic of the week and then um, our q a so when we say your turn, this is when we talk about what's new with you. I think it's always fun to get some feedback about your accomplishments in the last week. Um, if you weren't on last week, you can go back a little farther if you want. Um, you can type them out. At the end of this uh, particular webinar, we will be giving out a prize. So the more you participate, the better. Ed will pick a winner um, based on participation and just you know your involvement so hopefully you guys can start typing out some of your achievements they can be scale related life related work related anything along those lines um, and then we'll read them off in a second but to give you a chance um, to get rolling here I can start with one of mine so I will say I finished a book this week um, which you know life gets busy I used to be an avid avid reader and you know of course I don't have much time for that. So I have hooked up with audible.com and I listen. So I listen during my workouts. I've listened um, on my walks and I listen in the car. And so I'm excited just to be getting back to um, reading in, in any sort of form. And I, I finished the Why We Sleep book, which was, um, I think, really, really fascinating. So if you're interested or you're having issues with sleep, 
I would look it up. Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Ed, your turn. Okay, so that's awesome. Good job, Susie. <laughs> um, I started my own garden, actually. Um, so I started planting like bell peppers, um, have some cucumbers, some raspberry bushes, uh, might try to do some apple trees. That'd be pretty cool too, but it's really small, but it's just something that I started up. Yeah, that's fun. How about you, Brad? Um, I'm trying to think about this week. It's been such a long week. I'm trying to think if it was this week or last week. So we did launch the Institute for Better Dieting this week. That was pretty awesome. Yeah, um, so true. that went live Wednesday and we just opened it up to the rest of the community um, today and then we'll open it up to the whole the non each perform members next week so that's actually gonna be super fun I've got the content for the first course all done and I'm just gonna be slowly releasing the lectures over the next uh, seven or eight weeks so that's actually that was a lot of work and it's uh, nice to see it coming to fruition and it's been nice been really nice to see the response we've got a lot of people signing up so that's been really cool yeah, very cool. Now, is the content different from what's in the, the certification course, or is it roughly the same? How does that work? Yes. So it's um, so the certification course is like a foundational class of like, hey, here's everything you need to know about human metabolism. Um, and this is more like, uh, I would say the, the cert course is like, you know, two inches deep and a mile wide. And each course within this one will be two inches wide and a mile deep. So we'll get really far into specific topics. Um, and then at the end of each one, we'll try to say how that applies to people in the real world. All right, very cool. All right, Ed, um, we have some things coming in. Can you see those, read some off? Yeah, sure. So Tiffany says she just restarted Eat to Perform three days ago and has hit her numbers every day so far. So awesome job, good. That's how you, um, that's how you, see great results consistency just keep that up keep that momentum going um sarah she's been hitting greens for two weeks and she's down six pounds after realizing the past month she hasn't been sticking to the plan very well awesome job that's <laughs> awesome yes yeah. um okay sabrina she pr'd uh, her overhead squat by uh, or her five rep max overhead squat this week with her 1RM weight while technically still on fat loss. So that's awesome, great work. Uh, let's see. All right, so Verena, she has two achievements last week. The first one is after two weeks on Eat to Perform, I started hitting all greens four days in a row. Planning the day before really is key. Yes, it is. That's the number one thing we tell people immediately. Start pre-planning. Um, and number two, after injury in the 2017 Open and trying to push through, I'm finally healed and I got back to my box last week. Look out, world. I'm coming for you. That's awesome. Nice. <laughs> All right. Uh, Rebecca, so she has been low carb and keto for around four years and all she and I ate all the carbs this week on my new Eat to Perform plan. I hit all greens on the first three days of my membership. Great, that's awesome, good job. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's a huge accomplishment. Yeah, Brad can yeah. talk a little bit about what happens when you start adding carbs back in, so um, yeah. remind us and, and we'll go through some of that. All right, back to you, Ed. All right, okay, so Beth says, this week's success, have recognized my daily eating to get back to greens after being diagnosed with GERD and finding out that many of the food choices were causing inflammation in her esophagus. Last week was a hot mess, so glad to be figuring this out with better food choices for you. That's awesome, good job. Uh, let's see. All right, let's get through a few more, and then we'll get to our topic here. All right, okay, so Sandy says, lost 15 pounds since December and has maintained it over the last month, including or including starting ETP and eating more calories. That's awesome, That's great good. work. All right, uh, Deborah says PR'd her power clean by 30 pounds, wow. went from 105 to 135. Great work. And all right, let's see, Suzanne says she reached her fat loss goal this week. 
nice job. Yeah, really great, guys. Um, if we didn't call yours out, don't worry, you're still eligible. We just have to move on. I did see where Season Riley said committed to group coaching. I think now it's called intensive coaching. It's the same thing, but congratulations on taking that step. If anyone's ever curious, the intensive coaching program um, for an extra fee, you get one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching with one of our senior coaches, including Dr. Brad here. So um, it's an awesome investment in your overall health. If you ever want information about that, just reach out in the app and we can give you that. Yeah, she actually is on my team and we got to nerd out for about 15 minutes talking about uh, science grants because she's in the whole grants office. So it was we got to commiserate over the pain of grant submission deadlines. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. See, there you go. You get to nerd out with somebody like Dr. Brad if you sign up for that. So. Cool. All right. So getting into our our, um, our main topic for the day, um, this is just a list of some of the popular types of high fat, low carb diets, um, obviously ketogenic, paleo, Atkins, Bulletproof. Um, Whole30 does have some carbs in it, but it tends to um, eliminate quite a few and can be higher in fat. And then um, Scandinavian, uh, which is a low carb, high fat diet. So Clearly not all of them, but these are some of the ones that, that we're, we're referring to when we go through this information. So um, I can go through some of the common claims or Brad can. Um, basically what we're gonna do is pick each one of these apart. Let's see, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, there's eight. Um, so we're gonna go through them one by one. So it doesn't really make sense to to read all of these off. So in the interest of time, I'll just let you um, go through these real quick, you, the um, listener, <laughs> and then we will we'll start dissecting them. So the first one, eating fat makes you burn fat. So, and by that we mean maybe burn more fat. Dr. Brad can go through this. Um, so what about this claim, Dr. Brad, that eating fat makes you burn more fat? Yeah. So. It's one of those things where it's it's true, but it's false, right? And that's I think that's one of the hardest parts about a claim like this is, you know, when you consume more of your calories from fat, you're you're gonna burn more, right? Because your body burns what it consumes. Um, now, so that's the technically yes part, but then the problem there is, is that just because you're utilizing more fat for fuel doesn't mean you're actually burning body fat, right? It's just you're burning the fatty acids that are present in your body from what you're consuming. So if you are, let's say you're consuming a, on a, on a normal diet, a mixed diet, you're consuming, you know, 80 grams of fat and you're burning 80 grams of fat. And then you go and you eat 200 grams a day in fat and you're only burning 180. Well, you're burning more fat from eating more fat, but your net balance of what's coming in versus what's going out in terms of fat oxidation is still, you know, net the wrong way. So a lot of people, you know, hear the thing, oh, you eat more fat, you burn more fat, but that doesn't mean that the net result is actually a positive result, right? You could be netting the wrong direction, right? It's kind of like, you know, if you think about your savings account, right? If you are, you know, if you spend $100, but you make 120, that's, you know, a little bit different than if you're making 10,000, but you know, spending 12,000, right? You're making more money, but you're also spending more money. So you've got a net deficit. So it's kind of the same idea of, yes, you can eat more fat to burn more fat, but as long as that net equation is the wrong direction, it doesn't really matter. Right, okay. So what's what's the, um, looking at that next bullet point, is it from eating more fat or just eating less carbohydrates? Does that play into it? Kind of what you were saying? So yeah, what it, it kind of depends on how you really think about it, but you know, fat oxidation really is usually regulated by presence or absence of carbohydrate. Um, and so a lot of times it's not that you're eating more fat, it's that you are eating less carbohydrate. Um, so a lot of times that's what it really comes down to is it's not like, hey, you're eating more fatty acids. So your body's saying, hey, let's turn up the, the oxidation of it. A lot of times it's just from eating less carbohydrates. So the same phenomenon happens if you just don't eat anything. Um, so if you don't consume carbohydrates, your fatty acid oxidation goes up um, just because of how carbohydrates select fuel um, in the body. Okay, cool. So, yeah, so carbs are that 
main fuel selector switch. How is that? How does that work? Yeah, so kind of the way to think about it is at all times your body's burning a mixture of, you know, uh, fat and carbohydrates. It's kind of like if you think about in your engine, right, there's always a mixture of fuel or gas and oil, right? And whenever you consume carbohydrates, it basically just shifts that that fuel mixture from away from fatty acids to a little bit more carbohydrates. Um, so food can do that whenever you consume carbohydrates or protein. Um, also, exercise will shift that that fuel mixture. So carbs are one of the main fuel selector switches is what I like to call it. Okay, cool. So basically, you're saying that, that more fat oxidation just doesn't equal more weight loss. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, cool. So does eating fat make you burn fat? Sort of that technically, yes, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're talking about um, the fat that's stored within your body. Um, rather, we're just talking about the fat from because that you're just eating more of it. So that's what your body's going to burn. Correct? Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on to the next one. So burning more calories with higher fat. So this would mean that just by eating more fat, that your body is going to burn more calories throughout the day. So talk to us about this one, Brad. Yeah, so this is, you know, it's kind of been one of those things where, you know, when high fat diets were initially popularized is they had one claim. And as those continue to be, you know, knocked down, they move to the next one, right? So it's kind of like, Every time one claim is shown, okay, that's not true, they find another one, and then there's another one and another one. Um, and so another one that was put out there was, you know, when you eat more fat, you actually expend more energy overall. Um, and so we've, you know, the scientific community has tested that pretty rigorously, right? We've done that in large clinical trials. We've done it in very controlled metabolic ward studies. Um, and there is, there's no difference, right? So if you consume a high-fat diet versus a high-carbohydrate diet over you know, any meaningful window is there's no difference in, you know, total energy expenditure just based on the diet principles alone. Um, the only macronutrient that can actually shift that up is protein. So if you think about it, you know, fats and carbohydrates in terms of changes in energy expenditure are virtually identical. Um, and protein can have a small effect of increasing energy expenditure. Right, because of that thermogenic effect of protein, right? Yes, yeah, so it's it's the thermogenic effect, and then there's also just when you consume large amounts of protein, you know, the way it's metabolized in your body, it's fairly inefficient, and it has to go through a lot of steps to be turned into something useful, um, so that kind of burns a little extra energy along the way. Okay, cool. Ed, I, uh, I skipped you. Do you have anything to say here? Or? No, I think... I think uh, you guys nailed it. Okay, cool. Um, so ketosis offers a metabolic advantage. So when we're talking about ketosis, that means very low carb. Um, Brad can probably go into that a little bit more. But um, Brad, I got this study from you. So let's talk a little bit about, about whether or not being in a true metabolic, I mean, in a true um, ketogenic state really does offer you some sort of metabolic advantage in terms of of burning or, or losing fat. Yeah, so this is kind of an extension of the high fat diet idea giving you, you know, quote a metabolic advantage. Um, so then it kind of goes a little step further and says, if you are in such a high fat, low carbohydrate, low protein approach that your body's in a state of ketosis, where basically what that means is it's kind of twofold. Um, you know, one, your body's utilizing fat at such a high rate that it can't keep up with kind of the the metabolic flow, so kind of the backfilled fatty acids get turned into ketones, and then those get used to fuel, you know, like your brain, your heart will use it, um, some of those things. And it's been hypothesized that that actually is not very efficient, so you actually burn more calories doing that, um, and that over a long period of time, that that kind of inefficiency becomes an advantage for fat loss. And so they've done those studies where they've basically taken people and they put them on a normal diet. Um, you know, quote unquote normal, and then a ketogenic diet and said, okay, is there a metabolic advantage? Um, and it turns out there, there is not, right? So over any meaningful period of time that actually matters to people, there's no metabolic advantage. Um, and then when you look at, you know, net fat balance over time, 
results from a ketogenic diet are not any better than you know a higher carbohydrate diet. So there doesn't really appear to be any metabolic advantage even of like a ketogenic state, which is kind of the extreme version of a high fat diet. Right. And then so what, like when you hear people who say, um, you know, I lost 30, 40 pounds going into a ketogenic diet, um, what does that signify to you? Yeah. So it's kind of hard to tease out exactly what's going on because there's a few reasons. You know, one is oftentimes when people have such dramatic, you know, diet changes, they usually also start working out a lot. Right. So how many people are going to say, hey, I'm just going to go from eating normally to eating this extreme and then also not starting to exercise. So typically it's a combination of the two things. Um, the other one is a lot of times people who are on a ketogenic diet just consume less calories. Um, you know, one is because a lot of times they also will have a higher protein intake. Um, and there's also just, they're eating a lot of vegetables. Um, so they're eating a lot of very, nutrient dense but not energy dense foods so they're just in a caloric deficit so it's kind of the change in diet causes a calorie deficit and they're usually combining it with you know pretty extensive exercise that are all combining together to result in those things um, and there's been enough research at this point that you know when you combine those things it doesn't really matter what type of that diet it is you're still going to have the same results so the high fat ketogenic nature of it really has nothing to do um, with the the fat loss benefit right so it's more like you're just in a calorie deficit yeah I mean you could do the same thing by you know going zero fat moderate carbohydrate moderate protein um, so you could get the same result it just kind of depends on you know, which modality you're going to choose right and then Ed from the sort of the the exercise science aspect of it I mean, do you, can you offer some um, some advice or so what happens when you're working out with very low carbs? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure now uh, Brad could definitely correct me if I'm wrong here, but we learned that um, in my exercise physiology class that your body actually or your brain, well, I guess your body starts to produce ketone bodies, which could be deadly, actually. I don't know. I don't know how severe the carbohydrates need to be depleted, but uh, from what I understand, it could be very dangerous. And obviously your performance tanks because carbohydrates is the main source of energy. Yeah, so there's there's kind of a few things. You know, one is, I'll kind of go in reverse order. Um, as exercise intensity increases, and pretty much anything over about 65%, um, your body starts to use mostly carbohydrates for fuel. You know, that the initial study that showed that was a tracer study done in 1993. Um, and it's a really famous paper. And they basically show you exactly what the fuel mixture is of people at different intensities, like 20, 65, and I think 80% of intensity. Um, and they really show that that shift to mostly carbohydrates occurs at 65%. So you're getting a lot more of your energy. Now, the idea of, you know, a ketogenic state being dangerous, um, you know, there's, there's the phenomenon called ketoacidosis, which is the you know the dangerous state. Now that really only occurs in a few circumstances. Um, one is in people who are type one diabetic and have no insulin present, uh, and that's just because insulin itself kind of controls ketone production. So when insulin is present at all, it can it can kind of put the brakes on ketone production. Um, so when you have no insulin present, you can get this ketoacidotic state, which can be deadly. Um, people who are type 2 diabetic, who are so severely insulin resistant, and they're so far down the path that they're not producing sufficient insulin, um, they can also experience ketoacidosis. Uh, and the other one is sepsis, right? So sepsis, what happens is there's so much, you know, bacteria in your system and there's such a massive inflammatory response that your insulin signaling is basically completely shut off and so they can also become ketoacidotic so the average person who's dieting in, in you know a ketogenic state their likelihood of having you know these high levels to which induces some sort of you know dangerous level um, is, is very very minimal so i think that's one of the things that you know it's just trying to make sure we understand the difference between a really pathological condition and just like a nutrient induced ketogenic state right yes I agree and there are instances where 
Um, a ketogenic diet can be beneficial. I've heard that being used with people who have seizures, um, yeah. epilepsy. So, um, yeah, I mean, maybe you can offer some more insight to that. I mean, I think there are some medically induced reasons why people would would do this. <laughs> um, but for the average person, I, I don't feel like it's giving you any sort of advantage over just um, a typical diet, right? Yeah. So there's, I mean, so intractable epilepsy is one of the medically defined conditions in which a ketogenic diet offers any therapeutic benefit. Um, and those are, there's a big difference between that and what people consider a ketogenic diet, right? Those people are on a diet that, I mean, they're, they're eating, you know, virtually zero carbohydrates. Their protein intake is, you know, less than, I think it's 10% of their overall calories. Um, and the other 90% is from fatty acids. And so that's a very extreme uh, intervention. You know, a lot of people who quote unquote do a ketogenic diet, they're still eating 15 to 20%, 25% protein. You know, they can get up to 100, 150 grams of carbohydrates a day and still be in a ketogenic state. Um, and that's very different from what the medically applied diet was initially intended for. Cool. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next claim. And um, for my grammar Nazis out there, I realize I have a misspelled word on here. I'm sorry. I will fix that. <laughs> um, I know that probably was driving some people crazy. I can spell restricted for some reason that I didn't catch that. So uh, moving on, eating more fat makes you lose more fat. So this is basically what we've already talked about. Um, so is there anything different you want to say to this, Brad? Yeah, I would just say, you know, there, there's two things is one, just the very surface level claim of, you know, eating more fat does not make you lose more fat. We've done the research over 30 years. It's it's very, very clear. Um, and the other thing is, you know, just because when you're when you're going after a weight loss program, right, you really care about the end result. Um, you know, the idea that your body's increasing fat oxidation, if that's not leading to a better net end result, that intermediate step really has no value it's kind of just you know trying to go after something that's kind of a you know a red herring so to speak yeah um i would agree and then back on the last slide where dr brad was talking about um you know you can actually and i've been to a lab and done this uh test where they, they put a big mask on your face and you breathe into it and you run on a treadmill and then it tells you at what point in your um exertion level when your body starts moving from burning fat to burning carbohydrates and everybody has a different point where that that transition happens um, but generally sort of the more cardiovascularly fit or um, even just fit in general you are the, the longer you can burn fat before your body switches over to burning carbohydrates and that's a good thing because if you're exercising um, at you know, a normal or, or even a slightly elevated heart rate and you're burning fat, then that is what will make you lose your stored body fat and not necessarily just eating more fat. So I think the answer to this lies in, in finding out um, or improving that area where your body is burning fat longer before you shift to carbohydrates as fuel. Does that yeah. sound You know correct? what's one of the... Yeah, and what's one of the really interesting things that I think a lot of people are not aware of, um, and we cover this in the certification course quite a bit, is, you know, a lot of people think people who are insulin resistant uh, or, uh, you know, type 2 diabetic, they, they have a carbohydrate metabolism problem, but they, the real story is they have a fat oxidation problem. Um, and if you take people who have insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes and you take a, a lean person and you have them exercise at the same intensity level relatively for themselves is the person who has diabetes or insulin resistance will actually use carbo or will um, use carbohydrates more in early stage exercise than they will fatty acids because it's really their underlying fat oxidation that's really the big issue that's driving their insulin resistance which is driving this higher level of uh, blood glucose so that's one of the interesting things i think a lot of people you know, don't really wrap their head around. Yeah, I agree. We can talk a little bit more if you have more questions about that. So I know, Ed, I'm going to let you talk a little bit about this and then chat back and forth with Dr. Dr. Brad about it. But basically, this claim is that fats are stored 
um, our fat stored more easily as fat. So Ed, I'll let you take this one. Are you there? Yeah, so this one just kind of talks about, yep, I'm here, could you hear me? Yeah. yeah. All right, we're good? Yeah. yeah. Okay, all right, so this slide pretty much just tells you the efficiency at how well your body um, stores body fat based on the dietary, your macros, your dietary macros. So dietary carbohydrate is stored as body fat with roughly 80% efficiency, while it's stored in muscle glycogen at uh, roughly 95%, which is where the carbohydrates are stored in your muscle. Uh, as for body fat, it actually, well, for dietary fats, it's stored as body fat roughly 96% of the time. Um, so as you could tell, that's a pretty wide discrepancy and a large margin. And we can say with about 96% confidence that diets high in fat intake are more efficient at storing food calories as fat than diets high in carbohydrate intake. Um, and that's essentially all this slide is saying. If there's anything that Brad would like to touch on, then go ahead. Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that was really talked about a lot in the early 2000s to the, you know, probably now is this idea that carbohydrates are, you know, they get stored as fat. Um, and one of the things that we've learned is that the, the efficiency of which carbohydrates are stored compared to fat, they're really not even on the same playing field. So if you take an energy balance state and you overconsume in carbohydrates versus fat, you're going to get, you know, a substantially higher level of fats that you're eating stored as body fat than carbohydrates. Um, and there's, there's data that actually shows, you know, if you take a normal person and you overfeed them like 500 grams of carbohydrates, the amount that's actually stored as body fat is about this much. Like if you look at a bar graph, probably about that much of it is stored. Where if you take people and you overfeed them fats, you know, you've got about half of that bar is actually stored. So it's one of those things where, you know, it actually makes intuitive sense. So a chemical that you consume that's stored in your body, if it's the same form, it's going to get stored more easily than something that then has to go through a really expensive process to get turned into something and then stored. Cool. And that makes sense. I actually was listening to an interview about, and, and the reason we don't talk about protein, overeating protein is that it's very difficult for your body to store excess protein as fat. Um, so I, I don't know what the efficiency rate is, but it would be very, very low. Um, but they, you know, in a protein overfeeding study that, that most of the subjects uh, or none of the subjects really put on any weight from, from overeating protein um, versus a, a peanut butter overfeeding study, which sounds like an awesome study to be in, but um, overeating because you think peanut butter is high in fat. So overeating peanut butter did cause every participant to, to gain weight. So maybe one of those like, duh moments. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting to listen to. Um, so then, do you eat less with a higher fat diet? And this is something I hear from you guys um, in your reviews sometimes, is that you feel like when your fats are higher, you are more satiated. So let's talk about that one, Dr. Brad. Yeah, so this is one of those things where the, the real world stuff that people tell us doesn't match up to the data. Um, and not just like one study, but you know, research from the 1990s until now. So 30 years of you know, very rigorous work has really told us, you know, one, that uh, dietary fat itself, like in isolation, um, is not, super satiating compared to carbohydrates um, or protein. Um, you know, we know that from satiety indexes. We know that from studies where what they've actually done is they've like snuck calories in without telling people <laughs> and then they've given them a normal meal and they've said, okay, if we preload you with fat or we preload you with carbohydrates or protein, how much do you eat at your next meal? Um, and, and all those types of studies really show us that when you consume more fat in your diet, you're more likely to consume a higher amount of calories than if you're eating a lower amount of fat, right? Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't have fat in your diet or you need to eat a low fat diet, but what it's telling you is this idea that, hey, if you eat more fat, you're not gonna eat as much because it's more satiating is really not true. Now, this is also the interesting piece of, 
you know, people tell us something different in the real world, but when you actually look at their food logs, so we have, you know, almost 1.5 million food logs in our database. And I can tell you that the thing that people overeat the most, it's not carbohydrates and it's not protein, it's fats, right? And it's that phenomenon that actually drives a lot of people to not following their plan or, you know, going over. Um, it's usually the fats. It's not the carbohydrates or the protein that cause that issue. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, specifically from what I see, and just to kind of summarize that a little bit. So um, you might meal, feel more full after a high fat meal, but I think that's likely just because you ate more calories, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And then um, you will find, and if you stick with this program long, long enough, that protein is the most satiating. And when I, I've only done one fat loss cycle, but I felt like it was the protein that was keeping me full. Um, I even just had my snack in the afternoon would be like a chicken breast um, because that's what would get me through to dinner. Um, so I think um, there is definitely it's a little bit of a mindset shift if you're used to thinking that more fats make you feel full. Um, but I would say eating the protein does. And one of the tricks that I do if I know I'm going out or I'm going to a place where there's like going to be lots of food, um, you know, a friend's house where everybody brings a dish, I will actually eat some protein before I go because then I find that I eat less when I'm there. Um, Ed, anything to say about that? Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's just so easy to overshoot um, your fat consumption just because a lot of people that don't track, um, they don't use a food scale. You know, you think what a serving size of peanut butter is, you would be really, really disappointed if you actually knew the serving size of peanut butter or oil or butter or whatever. It's a lot more than you're anticipating and they're all very high in calories. So, um, I don't know about you guys, but I would love to do that peanut butter study, by the way. Love peanut butter. Okay. Um, but, I mean, it's just I would overshoot my calories all the time. Um, and that's why I think, you know, if you have a really good plan in place, it's not like we're anti-fats. We do allow for a lot of uh, a good amount of fats, um, but you can make these things fit into your plan. So if you have a good plan in place, then, you know, we'll set you up and have you consume a a proportionate amount of fats to make sure your hormones are functioning properly and um, you're not like starving or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, even if you just think about it from like a very simple perspective, so let's say you're trying to eat a, a meal that's like 100 grams in carbohydrates and you're off by 20% in your measurement, right? That's 20 grams, that's 80 calories, right? Yeah. Not a big deal. Well, let's say you've got, you know, 100 grams of fat and you're off by 20%, that's 180 calories, right? So anytime you're off by a percentage with carbohydrates versus fat, the amount of fat you're overconsuming actually has a bigger impact on your daily energy intake than, you know, being off a little bit with your carbohydrates too. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to look at that because I know as hard as we try, um, you can measure everything to the nth degree. You're still going to be off. There's still going to be a percentage. Um, I saw where they had uh, even registered dietitians track their food intake day after day after day. Um, and as RDs, you would think they knew what they um, were consuming, but even even they were off a percentage plus or minus of what they tracked. So um, that's a good point to make there. OK, so let's summarize. And I know we're probably going to have a lot of questions. Um, so in summary, the claim that high fat, low carb diets are superior. Um, to basic cal calorie restriction is false. So I think, you know, we're still talking calories in, calories out, that matters. Um, adherence with a low carb diet is often quite low. So, um, you know, possibly you have tried a ketogenic diet and couldn't stick to it, um, or even something like a paleo diet uh, where you're, you know, you were having cauliflower rice and, and tons and tons of protein. Eventually that gets hard to maintain. And adherence is a far better predictor of long-term success. So if you, and Brad has talked about this quite a bit, pick something and stick with it. Because I think what we've found with all this science is that this works, this works, this works, this works, but what? it's not going to work if you can't do it long-term, right? And then um, 
you know, there might be some other health reasons that we talked about why you would do low carb, uh, but certainly not for any of the claims that we went through. Um, Dr. Brad, anything you want to add? Yeah, I think kind of one thing that I like to remind people, and this goes to the you know long-term success piece, is most people overestimate how difficult something or how extreme an intervention they need, um, but they underestimate the length of time it's going to take to get to where, the, where they want, right? It's kind of like that Bill Gates quote. He's like, most people overestimate what they can do in 10 years or two years and underestimate what they can do in 10. It's the same thing. You know, a lot of people go, okay, here's where I am. I want to be here. And they take a very big extreme intervention and they do it for a short period of time. And in reality, what they need is a smart plan, a moderate intervention, and something they can do for an extended period of time. Now, the sad part is one sells, one is sexy, one is not, and it's a lot more difficult, but one will actually get you to where you want to be. You know, it's kind of like saving for retirement, right? You can either, you know, run through 40 get rich quick schemes and fail at all of them. And after 40 years of trying it, you're going to still, you're going to have $0 in the bank or you can say, okay, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to save as much as I can. I'm going to, you know, invest in compound interest. And in 40 years, I'm going to have $7 million in the bank, right? One is, one is substantially more successful. One doesn't sound as much fun. So that's kind of the, the hard truth that a lot of people have to swallow. Yeah. Ed, anything on this? Yeah, I think I think you just need to find something that works for you and it's sustainable. Kind of what Brad just talked about. You know, if you're gonna do one of these 30-day, you know, quick fixes, how does that usually end up, right? I mean, you end up probably gaining the weight back, unfortunately, and maybe even a little bit more. Um, ketogenic just doesn't seem to be, you know, unless you plan on never having carbs really again. Um, you know, it's it's not super sustainable. So you want to find something that works for you and is conducive to your life. Right. Now, before we move on, Brad, I want you to talk a little bit about what happens when you go from low carb um, and then you're adding carbs back in. What what kind of process does your body go through? Yeah. So it kind of depends on how you do it. Um, but and you know how fast it happens but here's kind of the major things that happen one is you'll get a fairly substantial amount of weight increase scale weight um, and depending on how big you are that can be two pounds or it can be 15 pounds right so if you're a 200 pound male and you've completely glycogen depleted yourself um, and then you add carbohydrates back in you can see over the span of you know seven to 14 days a 15 pound weight gain right I mean, even just look at like professional bodybuilders, how much they weigh stage day versus two weeks after. Sometimes there's a 30 pound difference between those guys. And that's just muscle glycogen, water, you know, interstitial water, kind of the whole just water balance of your body. Um, and so a lot of people that freaks them out, right, is they've dieted down to this ultra low weight. They're super dehydrated and that's their new baseline. And they go, OK, I'm 135. I'm never going back up to 136. That's it. I have to do everything I can to stay there. And then they basically just fill up their gas tank and they go, oh, my God, this is awful, right? It's kind of like take your car on empty, have it weighed, and then fill the gas tank and have it weighed. Your car didn't get fat. Your car just put fuel in the tank, right? So that's one thing. Another thing is, and this is one of the more understated but one of the bigger issues a lot of people face is when you restrict carbohydrates for a long time, you change your microbiome. You change your body's ability to digest carbohydrates. And so then a lot of people add things back in. They don't feel good. They get bloated. They have stomach aches. And they feel like they can't process carbohydrates. And it's because they've basically taken a lot of the things in their body that metabolize carbohydrates like they're supposed to and really kind of squash those down to where they're not functioning very well. So they're going to have a little bit harder time kind of coming back online. And this is one of the big issues we've had when we work with you know, athletes who have to, you know, they train really low carbohydrate because they want to be fat adapted, whatever that means. And then they go to their race and they try to consume carbohydrates during the race because they need it. And then they just have horrible GI issues and they can't finish the race. So it's, those are kind of the two big things that a lot of people run into when they go from, you know, very low carbohydrate to, hey, I need to get off this crazy train and get back to normal. Right. When you go low fat for a long period of time, you, basically what you're saying, your your body becomes very inefficient then at burning carbohydrates. So there is a transition period, and I'm sure that transition period varies in length, 
um, from person to person. But if you were low carb, um, it is important for whoever your coach is, um, whether you're with e to perform or not with e to perform, um, that, that we know that, right? Because then we can give you a little bit better idea of what to expect as you start adding carbohydrates back into your diet. And a lot of people like to think that carbohydrates are, are the enemy, um, but I think they've just gotten a bad rap. Um, you know, for whatever reason, I will say like I um, I've been a coach here for three years and I have a twin brother and my twin brother right now is on a ketogenic diet. Like, <laughs> and it's so like he should know better, but in the sense that it's just sexy, right? Like it's, um, you know, it's talked about people who do it and, and, you know, have success, even if it's temporary, they talk about it. And like Brad was saying, nobody wants to talk about I'm, you know, I'm saving $50 a week for retirement. Like no one wants to hear about that, but everyone wants to hear about the guy who won the lottery. Right. And, um, and it, it also seems like the road with the faster path. Right? right. A lot of people think, oh, OK, well, I don't really have to do all the other stuff. I can just do this. And it's a hack and a trick. And it, it's a quicker route to success. Right. That's what it's that's what most people view it as. Right. And I think it's some of like misery loves company. So, you know, they're doing it. They're trying to talk you into doing it. <laughs> right. So you can yep. all be miserable together without your carbs. Um, any other thoughts on that, uh, Ed? Yeah, I just want to touch on why it is a quick fix. So, um, well, two things. You're cutting out a macronutrient, so you may end up eating less calories total. Uh, but also you're pulling out all of the water that was in your muscles and all of those other areas. So, yes, you're losing weight, but what weight are you losing? You're, it's not all body fat. Like, it's just not unless you're in a caloric deficit, of course. But if you're just pulling out water from your muscles and stuff like that, the only weight that you really want to lose is body fat. Because if we lose muscle, then, you know, that compromises your metabolism and hormone function and all that stuff. So, um yeah, that's that's really all I wanted to say about that. Okay, cool. Well, I'm gonna let you guys ask your questions. I see we've already got some coming in. So yeah, we've got a bunch. Yeah. yeah. So we're gonna have Ed just read them off, and then I'm sure most of them are for Dr. Brad, but we can add in, you know, from our knowledge too. So I think Ed, I think the first one might be Sheila Carver. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So she's asking. I have read if your glucose levels in the blood is high, your body must get um, get the levels back down by either burning it or using it uh, using insulin to store it. As such, you cannot burn fat if your blood glucose is high. Wondering if there's some truth to this. So this is kind of one of those things where a lot of people don't understand the directionality of the effect. So the reason most people have high fasting blood glucose is not because of dietary glucose, right? It's because they have some sort of impaired metabolism that's preventing baseline levels of glucose metabolism. And that's usually impaired fatty acid metabolism, um, usually a result of, you know, energy excess and a lot of other things. So the idea that you can't burn fat if your blood glucose is high, um, it's kind of also one of those things that's true but not true so people who have high levels of fasting blood glucose typically have impaired fat metabolism um, and it's not because the glucose is high the glucose is high because they have impaired fat metabolism so it's really a directionality of effect so a lot of times you know what gets blood glucose levels down is it's you know improving this baseline fat metabolism usually through weight loss um, you know, an energy deficit over a long period of time, right? There's no, except, except for very kind of powerful drugs, um, there's really no way to improve this glucose metabolism at baseline until you've kind of dealt with energy availability in, in weight loss. That's, that's really how that goes. Okay. Um, all right. So the next question is from Verena. How does a ketogenic um, state affect insulin production or resistance? You want to take this, Brad? So, yeah. So a ketogenic state, how does it, you know, affect insulin production? So if you're if you're in a ketogenic state because of carbohydrate restriction, uh, 
your insulin levels are going to be lower. So you're going to produce less insulin just because you're eating less carbohydrates. Um, now, that's not a good thing or a bad thing, right? That's just a thing. Um, you know, a lot of people have this idea of, oh, if you produce less insulin, it's healthier for you. That, that's not really true, right? I mean, if that were true, type 1 diabetics would be the healthiest people on the planet. But they're not, right? They're very sick because insulin is actually something that's really useful. It's it's restorative, it's used for growth, it's anti-catabolic, it's all this stuff. Um, so really, high levels of insulin in the body are not the problem, it's what's causing the high levels of insulin. Um, now, how does the ketogenic state affect insulin resistance? Depending on the context, um, it can either improve it or make it a lot worse, right? So if you think about, if you're, eating, if you're in a ketogenic state due to you know, caloric restriction, an exercise and you're losing weight, it's going to improve insulin resistance. If you're consuming 7,000 calories a day and you're not moving and you're in a ketogenic state, it's going to make insulin resistance a lot worse. So it's really a uh, depends on the context of, of how it can make it better or worse. Yeah, and I'll say like you can also um, be in have, your your insulin is naturally low when you haven't eaten for a long period of time. So if you're fasting or first thing in the morning, your insulin levels are lower, and when they're lower, you tend to use more fat as fuel. Um, you can tell me if I'm wrong. But um, so if you're looking for the benefits of, of being at a lower insulin level, you can do that without being in a ketogenic state. Correct, Brad? Yeah, you know, you can just not eat while you're sleeping, right? An eight-hour sleep at night is a fast so you're going to be having these periods right okay go right. on okay so deborah is asking why would a doctor recommend this diet for diabetes maybe the control on sugar they just recommended this diet for my mother who is a type 2 diabetic yeah so the the main reason that you would recommend it is the caloric restriction right if you can use it as a tool to lower calories and lower body weight you're going to improve your glucose control um, now the idea that you know just not consuming a lot of dietary carbohydrates improves glycemic control um, was a good idea you know in theory but when we've tested that it doesn't really appear to have a lot of benefit in long-term fasting glucose. Now there is some potential benefit for like glucose variability through the throughout the day, but that doesn't really appear to be the most important factor when we think about how do we dietarily approach people with type 2 diabetes. You know, the, the biggest things we know are weight loss is going to be the biggest thing you can do. Um, Physical activity is the, the other biggest thing. And then whether you're on a low-carb or low-fat diet really doesn't appear to make a substantial difference in terms of, you know, health outcomes. Yeah, I would agree with that. Losing weight is probably the number one. And then, you know, that exercise. And if you're restricting carbs to the point where your mom doesn't feel like exercising, then that's sort of, you know, working against yourself, I think, a little bit. Um, you know, I, I know plenty of people who have been told that by a physician um, and then they don't have the energy to get out and walk or exercise. And so they're letting the, the calories control that piece. But there's also another you can improve your health by feeling better and, you know, just walking, things like that. And you want to make sure you have the energy to do that. Right, Brad? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, OK. All right, so Sarah is asking, do people think that fat is more satiating just because it is more satisfying in that it makes food taste good? So for me, if a food tastes good, I don't want to stop eating it. Um, you could also put oils on food. So I'm not really sure where this came from. Um, maybe Brad could give some insight, but I'm not sure why people would say that it, it, it's more satiating because you don't get a lot of it. Yeah, you know, so we've... Whenever I say we, I just use use it as a collective term for scientists, right? Is uh, we've really figured out what makes people consume food, right? And it's a mixture of if you take carbohydrates with fats and add some salt and some crunch, you're going to eat a lot of food. Um, and so fats actually are one of the things that make things taste good and then make you eat more of them, right? People are more likely to overeat foods that are very palatable, that are very enjoyable versus not. It's kind of like you know, let's say you just finish a big dinner, 
and you're sitting there and someone brings you a plate of steamed plain broccoli, they're going to be like, nah, I'm good. But if they bring you, you know, a plate of like really rich brownies that are just like sweet and fatty and they've got some chocolate chips. So it's crunchy. You're going to be like, I'll take the whole plate even though I'm full. Right. So it's just because something tastes good doesn't mean you're going to eat less of it. It means you're actually going to eat more of it. Right. Which I think we all see when we go out to eat at restaurants, too. Yep. All right. Uh, next one. Michael says, recently I have used keto as a way to recover from vacation, but realized this is a very poor way to get back on track and is a, and is miserable, really. Just getting back on plan is effective and satisfying and way less of a shock to the system. I agree. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. That's something like my brother, my twin, I was telling you about, he's doing this so he can lose weight for vacation. And then he's just going to go on vacation and, you know, eat some French fries and he's going to put on everything he just took off to go on vacation. But anyway, I agree with you. So, all right. So Verena says, so do carbs help the body stay hydrated? So carbohydrates hydrate your body, right? It hydrates your muscles at least. Um, I don't know if it necessarily makes you more hydrated, like some foods such as fruits, uh, such as berries or cucumbers or tomatoes, things like that. They're very high in water percentage for the food. So it could help you stay hydrated, but it does hydrate your muscles for sure, which is the reasoning for that term. Uh, Brad, do you have anything you'd like to touch on for that? Yeah. So, you know, the reason we call them carbohydrates is when they're in your body, they, they bind water molecules, right? So when they're stored as glycogen, they actually just trap water in. And so that's why you call them carbohydrates. So they do hydrate whatever tissue um, they're being stored in, which is, uh, you know, muscle, skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle, um, smooth muscle, and, and liver where you have large stores. Um, so that's where, you know, it gets the hydration properties from. Okay. Um, Susie, do you have anything or are you good? Nope. Nope. Okay. All right. Next one. Um, Deb is asking, friends are doing keto because of inf inflammation. Do carbs cause inflammation in people with arthritis? Now, I don't, I don't think that, like, there's definitely carbs that don't cause inflammation that are very anti-inflammatory. Uh, but Brad would definitely have a better idea on this, I'm sure. So, Brad? Yeah. So, you know, Ed, Ed's completely right is there's, there's some foods that are more anti-inflammatory than others. You know, there's fats that are more anti-inflammatory. There's proteins that are more anti-inflammatory versus, you know, pro-inflammatory. Um, you know, part of the issue with arthritis is there's a lot of different things that cause arthritis, right? Is it from, you just have worn away all your meniscus and so it's bone on bone. Is it rheumatoid? Is it, you know, some other form of autoimmune? Um, etc. You know, one of the things we do know that improves the systemic inflammation in the body and also tissue specific is is weight loss. Um, you know, both from just how when you have less body fat, you have you know a lower inflammatory state in your body. Um, so so that's typically why you would use you know any sort of ketogenic diet to control inflammation is that leads to weight loss. You're gonna have less inflammation. You're gonna feel better. So. That would be the main reason. There's really no, you know, magical anti-inflammatory property there. Cool. Right. Okay. Um, Heather is asking, in relation to the blood glucose question, can ETP reverse pre-diabetic uh, pre state? Uh, fiance just got put on Truvio SP and tries to limit carbs as um, I eat pounds of rice in front of him and he does not think ETP would be for him. Um, yeah. So basically we have, I'm trying to think how many people, I mean, we have probably two, 300 clients who have either been diagnosed with type two diabetes or pre-diabetes. And we've been able to bring their A1Cs and their blood sugars down pretty substantially. Um, I know Greg, he went from like, I think it was like a nine on his A1C down to like a 5.7, right? Which is you know, the criteria for diagnosis is I think it's 6.5. Um, so, you know, absolutely, right? I think a lot of people have this idea that dietary carbohydrates drive your blood glucose and your A1C and, and that kind of stuff. And they just don't. Um, 
we, we've done enough research that we know that. So uh, the short answer is yes, right? Absolutely. We've proven that with a lot of people um, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. And we just feel like ours is the best way to do it for long-term sustainability, right? You could probably go on some sort of crash approach for 60 days, bring it back down, but then in a year, it's gonna be probably back to where it was or even higher. Yeah, right. and if, if you do get your boyfriend on board, make sure he lets us know, because we can monitor that situation. All right. All right. We're getting um, into an hour, so we're gonna, we're trying to move a little faster and then I'll cut us off at some point so we can give out our prize and, and hopefully not have too many people have to drop off. So let's get to a few more here. All right. So uh, Jen is asking, why are type 1 diabetics A1C in the normal range on a ketogenic diet if there are no long-term benefits? Um, I'm trying to see if I understand this in the normal range on a ketogenic diet. So, some of the reasons they might do that is if you have, if you consume less dietary carbohydrate, you have to use less, you know, exogenous insulin to manage your levels because people who are type one have no insulin. So outside of exercise um, and some other ways that you have non-insulin mediated glucose uptake, they really have to use insulin to, to control once sugar goes up to bring it back down. Um, so some people, if you know, they don't want to use exogenous insulin or it's expensive or something, they may be on a ketogenic diet, but there's really no, there's no need for them to be there. So it's kind of one of those things where there's really no need for you to do that. There's a lot of other ways you can go after it. All right. All right. So Michael is saying electrolyte management suddenly becomes more difficult when you get rid of carbs. They get flushed out as soon as they get in or they go in. So you have to constantly try to get in enough through the day just so you don't feel like crap. Yeah. Yeah. So it is harder to manage electrolyte balance when you're you know, not consuming an adequate amount of carbohydrates. All right. Uh, I only think if that's it for questions. Yep. Yeah. So um, one other one, uh, it's not here, but I'll ask Brad real quick. So is a carb, a carb, a carb, like, white rice, brown <laughs> rice, um, you know, there are some carbs that are better than other carbs. Real quick. Yeah, so I'll try to keep this brief. Uh, a carb is a carb is a carb, right? So energy-wise, it doesn't really matter where they come from, right? A calorie from potato and a calorie from sugar and a calorie from X, they're all pretty, you know, for all intents and purposes, they're very similar. Um, the context is where they differ, right? So think about the context of consuming, you know, a Mountain Dew versus a bowl of rice. Think about, you know, how you're thinking about it, the types of behaviors that you're developing with them, um, and the other nutrients that come with it, right? So in the context of your overall diet, the more micronutrients you get per gram of energy is a, is a good thing. Um, how you're consuming them in terms of your behaviors, what types of habits are you establishing? So those are all things. So the answer really is yes and no at the same time. So it's kind of, the energy is very equivalent across them, but the context and the nutrient profiles are very different. Yeah, cool, that's usually what I say too. So. <laughs> um, all right, so let's pick uh, someone for our prize and Ed can explain what that is, and then we'll just um, close out with a few thoughts. All right, guys. So this week's prize is a keto. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> this week's prize is um, actually Vitargo, which is a intracarb work, uh, intracarb supplement. It has no sodium or sugar. You could use it before, during, or after a workout. It's awesome. I love it. I take it all the time. And the winner is going to be Verena Marsden. Congratulations. Yay. So well, if you missed that, Vitargo is just a supplement um, that can help you hit your carbs if you struggle with that or in your high days or your super days. Um, it's great. You can get the flavor of your choice. And then, Ed, I believe, how do you follow up with Marina? Uh, I will either reach out to her or Lori will reach out to her. I'm not sure how it goes. I'm going to have to talk to Amber about that. Um, 
but one of us will reach out to you, get your um, shipping or your shipping info, and we'll uh, send that out to you. Cool. All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining. I hope you found it informative. Like Dr. Brad said, if you are interested, um, especially in this topic of diabetes, um, look up the Better Institute for or the Institute for Better Dieting. Um, I know you're going to cover this. Um, and since it's not strictly uh, for ETP members alone, maybe you have family members you're concerned about, or, or maybe they just need um, some some solid um, scientific knowledge without any sort of bias attached to it, um, point them toward the, the Institute for Better Dieting. Correct, Brad? Yes. Sadly, I am not biased by millions of dollars from NorvoDisc or GlaxoSmithKline, but that would be awesome <laughs> if I was. <laughs> <laughs> he is not sponsored by anyone, but if you know someone willing to sponsor Dr. Brad, go ahead and contact him about that too, right? <laughs> yep. All right, guys. Well, thanks for the, the Friday chat. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes. You guys, um, join us next time. We will announce the subject uh, in the group and then through the app. So have a great weekend, everybody. Bye, guys.